Section 14 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Archibald Hamilton, afterwards Duke of Hamilton, as his daughter Lady Dunmore told me, advertised for a hermit as an ornament to his pleasure grounds, and was stipulated that the said hermit should have his beard shaved but once a year, and that only partially. A friend calling on him one forenoon asked if it was true that he kept a young tame tiger. He immediately slapped his thighs and uttered a sort of whistle, and forth crept the long-backed animal from under the sofa. The visitor soon retreated. Lord Shelburne could say the most provoking things, and yet appear quite unconscious of their being so. In one of his speeches, alluding to Lord Carlyle, he said, The noble lord has written a comedy. No, a tragedy, in square brackets, The Father's Revenge. Oh, I beg pardon. I thought it was a comedy. I know few lines finer than the concluding stanza of Life by Mrs. Barbold, who composed it when she was very old. Life, we have been long together, through pleasant and through cloudy weather. Tis hard to part when friends are dear. Perhaps twill cost a sigh, a tear. Then steal away, give little warning, choose thine own time. Say not good night, but in some brighter clime bid me good morning. Sitting with Madame D'Arblay some weeks before she died, I said to her, do you remember those lines of Mrs. Barbold's life, which I once repeated to you? Remember them, she replied. I repeat them to myself every night before I go to sleep. Strangely enough, in spite of her correct taste, Mrs. Barbold was quite fascinated by Darwin's Botanic Garden when it first appeared, and talked of it with rapture, for which I scolded her heartily. One day, as she was going to Hampstead in the stagecoach, she had a Frenchman for her companion, and entering into conversation with him, she found that he was making an excursion to Hampstead for the express purpose of seeing the house in the flask walk where Clarissa Harlow lodged. What a compliment to the genius of Richardson! Bobus Smith, who could repeat by heart an astonishing quantity of Latin prose, used to admire greatly the Raptor Lagitor of Tacitus. I am inclined to prefer Sallust's expression, Alieni apetens sui profusus. A few days before his death, Bobus said to me, Rogers, however we may doubt on some points, we have made up our minds on one, that Christ was sent into the world commissioned by the Almighty to instruct mankind. I replied, yes, of that I am perfectly convinced. When I was a lad, I recollect seeing a whole cart full of young girls in dresses of various colours on their way to be executed at Tyburn. They had all been condemned on one indictment for having been concerned in, that is perhaps for having been spectators of, the burning of some houses during Lord George Gordon's riots. It was quite horrible. 
Greville was present at one of the trials consequent on those riots, and heard several boys sentenced to their own excessive amazement to be hanged. Never, said Greville with great naivety, did I see boys cry so. Sir Thomas Lawrence told me that when he in his boyhood had received a prize from the Society of Arts, he went with it into the parlour where his brothers and sisters were sitting, but that not one of them would take the slightest notice of it, and that he was so mortified by their affected indifference that he ran upstairs to his own room and burst into tears. On coming home late one night, I found Sir Thomas Lawrence in the street, hovering about my door and waiting for my return. He immediately began the tale of his distress, telling me that he was in pressing need of a large sum of money and that he depended on my assistance, being sure that I would not like to see the President of the Royal Academy a bankrupt. I replied that I would try what I could do for him next morning. Accordingly, I went early to Lord Dudley. As you, I said, can command thousands and thousands of pounds, and have a truly feeling heart, I want you to help a friend of mine, not, however, as a gift, but either by a loan, or by purchasing some valuable articles which he has to sell. Dudley, on learning the particulars, accompanied me to Sir Thomas's house, where we looked at several pictures which he wished to dispose of in order to meet the present difficulty. Most of them were early pictures of the Italian school, and though valuable, not pleasing, perhaps, to any except artists. Dudley bought one of them, a Raphael in his first style, as it was called, and probably was, giving, I believe, more than a thousand guineas for it. And he lent Sir Thomas, on a bond, a very considerable sum besides. No doubt, if Lawrence had lived, he would have repaid Lord Dudley by instalments, but he died soon after, and not a penny was ever paid back. This, to so very wealthy a man as Dudley, was of no consequence, and I dare say he never thought about it at all. Sir Thomas, at the time of his death, was a good deal in my debt, nor was I ever repaid. He used to purchase works of art, especially drawings of the old masters, at immense prices. He was careless in keeping accounts, and he was very generous. Hence his difficulties which were every now and then occurring. Mrs. Siddons told me that one night as she stepped into her carriage to return home from the theatre, Sheridan suddenly jumped in after her. Mr. Sheridan, she said, I trust you will behave with all propriety. If you do not, I shall immediately let down the glass and desire the servant to show you out. Sheridan did behave with all propriety. But, continued Mrs. Siddons, as soon as we had reached my house in Marlborough Street and the footman had opened the carriage door, only think, the provoking wretch bolted out in the greatest haste and slunk away, as if anxious to escape unseen. After she had left the stage, Mrs. Siddons, from the want of excitement, was never happy. When I was sitting with her of an afternoon, she would say, Oh dear, this is the time I used to be thinking of going to the theatre. 
First came the pleasure of dressing for my part, and then the pleasure of acting it, but that is all over now. When a grand public dinner was given to John Kemble on his quitting stage, Mrs. Siddons said to me, Well, perhaps in the next world women will be more valued than they are in this. She alluded to the comparatively little sensation which had been produced by her own retirement from the boards, and doubtless she was a far, far greater performer than John Kemble. Coombe recollected having seen Mrs. Siddons when a very young woman, standing by the side of her father's stage and knocking a pair of snuffers against a candlestick to imitate the sound of a windmill during the representation of some harlequin piece. John Campbell was often very amusing when he'd had a good deal of wine. He and two friends were returning to town in an open carriage from the Priory, Lord Abercorn's, where they had dined. And as they were waiting for change at a toll-gate, Campbell, to the amazement of the toll-keeper, called out in the tone of Roller, We seek no change, and least of all such change as he would bring us. When Campbell was living at Lausanne, he used to feel rather jealous of Mont Blanc. He disliked to hear people always asking, How does Mont Blanc look this morning? Sir George Beaumont, when a young man, was introduced at Rome to an old painter who in his youth had known an old painter who had seen Claude and Caspar Poussin riding out in a morning on mules and furnished with palettes, etc., to make sketches in the Campagna. Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, was not so beautiful as she was fascinating. Her beauty was not that of features, but of expression. Everybody knows her poem, Mount St. Gotthard. She wrote also what is much less known, a novel called The Sylph. Gaming was the rage during her day. She indulged in it and was made miserable by her debts. A faro table was kept by Martindale at which the Duchess and other high fashionables used to play. Sheridan said that the Duchess and Martindale had agreed that Whatever they two, one from each other, should be sometimes double, sometimes treble, the sum which it was called. And Sheridan assured me that he had handed the Duchess into her carriage when she was literally sobbing at her losses, she perhaps having lost fifteen hundred pounds when it was supposed to be only five hundred pounds. General Fitzpatrick said that the Duke's love for her grew quite cool a month after their marriage, that she had many sighing swains at her feet, among others the Prince of Wales, who chose to believe that she smiled upon Lord Grey, and hence the hatred which the Prince bore to him. The Duke, when walking home from Brooks's about daybreak, for he did not relish the gaieties at Devonshire House, used frequently to pass the stall of a cobbler who had already commenced his work. As they were the only persons stirring in that quarter, they always saluted each other. Good night, friend, said the Duke. Good morning, sir, said the cobbler. The Duchess was dreadfully hurt at the novel of Winter in London. 
which contained various anecdotes concerning her which had been picked up from her confidential attendants. And she thought, of course, that the little great world in which she lived was intimately acquainted with all her proceedings. Never read that book, for it has helped to kill me, were her words to a very near relative. End of section 14